0: Hear the word of God from Exodus chapter 32 and 40. The accounts of Aaron and the Israelites making a golden calf to worship during the 40 days that Moses was on Mount Sinai and the completion of the tabernacle in the last chapter of Exodus. Chapter 32, starting with verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron And said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, the guy who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they all rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings, And brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. And have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath will burn hot against them and I will consume them in order that I can make a great nation out of you. And now to chapter 40, starting with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle in the first month. In the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected door of the tabernacle in the first month in the second year. On the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases. He set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded. He took the testimony and he put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded him. He put the table into the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded him. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed. I commanded him. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded them. And he erected the court around the, the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded them and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it throughout all of their journeys whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle the people would set out but if the cloud was not taken up then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord throughout all of their journeys out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. And the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church family. I hope you're doing well today. One of the things I've noticed while watching you guys on Zoom, and not watching in like a weird, creepy way or anything, but just seeing you on Zoom, is that some of you approach worship differently from home. Some of you get dressed up for church still. I see you guys dressed up in your nice little outfits. Some of the kids are dressed up really cute and stuff. Some of you guys are still in your PJs, having a blanket wrapped around you. No judgment. No judgment. It's all good. I've seen some of you guys outside with your computers on a beautiful day. I've seen some of you guys stand and worship. Some of you guys just sink deeper into your couch and worship. However you're joining us today, I'm just glad you're here. I'm just glad we get to worship together. We're continuing in our sermon series on the Pentateuch. I know we went ahead of our, we're a little bit ahead of our sermons to our Bible reading plan. so we're still in Exodus in our sermon series and our Bible reading plans in Numbers but we wanna, or um, Leviticus actually, but we wanna wanna catch up quickly, so you'll see how we catch up later on our sermon series. But before we get started, I wanna share with you a quick story that I read the other day. A man called up a local handyman because he had an issue at home that needed repairing. The handyman was super friendly and even told the homeowner that he may consider doing the job himself because it was fairly easy and one could see how to do it by looking at maybe the owner's manual or by looking on YouTube. So the homeowner was shocked by the honesty of the handyman, and asked him, why are you telling me this? I mean, if you tell me this, you're just gonna pass up on business for yourself. The handyman honestly replied that he actually often sees more business for himself when other people try to fix it. And so I share this story with my reason why, to you, and to my wife in particular, that I'm a firm non-do-it-yourselfer. I mean, most of you know whom me know that I am a complete anti diyer I mean, even jobs that seem super easy, I have no doubt that I will take way too long to finish, break something, and be really super frustrated in the process. Fix a leak? Nah, can't do it. Don't even mention Ikea furniture. That's like the bane of my existence. Not for me. I love the idea of somebody helping me or somebody else better, more experienced at doing it, who actually may enjoy building, doing the project instead. But do you know what the funny thing is? as a much of an anti do it yourselfer that I am i often find that i often try to live life on my own now i'm not talking about repair projects or building projects or home repair i'm talking about being sometimes a good father and a husband i'll talk about dealing with stressful life circumstances i'll talk about pre- preparing for the future dealing with hard life struggles it seems to be over and over again my motto during those times seems to be i'll try harder work more, do more by myself. And can I just be real with you guys? It's exhausting. Can you relate with me? I mean, times get so hard, you buckle down more. Right? That's what you're taught. Maybe that's the way I was taught. I was taught when times get hard, you buckle down, you, you grit it, you bear it, you, you rely on your own strength, you rely on your own ability, you, you go after it, you just work hard, you persevere. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe that's what you're in. you're in a tough time and you're taught, maybe I just got to work harder, dig deeper, look into myself. Can I tell you something? The Christian life is not a do-it-yourself project. Let's take a look into our text and see this beautiful contrast between the do-it-yourself and versus what God does through you. Our text today finds us after the Israelites were rescued from slavery and the armies of Egypt have been crushed by the sea. Then God provided for the people by manna and quail and, as well as water in a miraculous way. They reached Mount Sinai and Moses met with God and received instruction. This process took longer than the Israelites wanted or expected to, so they took matters into their own hands. They went up to Aaron and said, let's build gods. So Aaron built a golden calf and an altar and they worshiped at it. Now let me stop there really quickly. Seriously? I mean, come on. When you read this passage, when you heard it read to you, is that not what you stop and think? When you, seriously, you, what? I mean, Moses and his God took them from slavery, rescued you from Pharaoh's armies, provided food and drink. And just because Moses is taking a little long, you build a different God? You go a different way? You do it yourself? Seriously? But wait, don't we often do that too? A hard time lasting a little longer than you like. You you don't trust. You make your own way. God not answering the prayer the way that you want answered. It is timely fashion that you want answered. Your life feel like it's yours alone and you'll do it yourself. I'll choose how to worship. I'll choose my God. I'll go my own way. Not so very different, are we? At least I'm not. Dr. Stephen Geller, a Jewish professor of Bible and ancient Semitic languages, says this about our text today. Most important is that between the account of the divine commission in Exodus 25-31 and its performance in Exodus 35-40, there is in Exodus 32-34 a radically contrastive event, the making of the golden calf and its aftermath. Very striking is the similarity between the initial command given to Moses and the construction of the calf. In the case of the tabernacle, the Israelites are requested by God to offer gold, silver, and bronze. The precious metals are to be offered by those whose heart moves them to donate. In the case of the calf, there is a similar offering, specifically of gold from the earrings of the Israelites. The source is ironic because the year is symbolic of obedience. And by telling them to tear off their earrings, Aaron is telling Israel to abandon their allegiance to God. This building of the golden calf is a classic example of a do-it-yourself. The Israelite people are at Mount Sinai and they couldn't grasp God's glory and I don't know the exact reason why they built a golden calf and decided to worship. I don't know why they chose a golden calf to worship. Nowhere in the Old Testament are we given any true clarity about why it was a calf. But it seems, and it sows over and over again, it seems to stand just as an example of true idolatry. And what we do know is that they created it themselves. They wanted something to worship. They wanted their own means to God. They did what Moses called them to do in worship. They had a festival, made burnt offerings, presented peace offerings. And the key contrast is found in verse six, in chapter 32. It's in the last Hebrew word here. So Hebrews uh, Exodus 32, verse six says this. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The last phrase, rose up to play, comes from the Hebrew word, sahak. It means self-indulgent revelry. In contrast to what they are called to, Exodus 24, chapter 24, verse 10 says this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The people ate and drank. The same thing that they did in chapter 32, but they beheld God. You see, the festival may have been the same, eating and drinking and offerings, but the key difference in self-indulgent pursuit and and beholding God. Let me repeat this over and over and over again for us today. Our lives, our worship may look similar at times, but there is a difference between a self-indulgent pursuit versus a do-it-yourself, I-am-my-own-God lifestyle to a gaze upon the glory, behold his wonder, falling in love with his mercy and utterly dependent upon it lifestyle. Do you hear that? I said there's oftentimes it might look similar, but there's a total difference between I can do it, I can control, I choose how to worship, I will do and I will rely on myself versus I'm utterly dependent, you are glorious, I need you God lifestyle. My friends, my people, beware how often we make our own golden calves. We want God to fit into our own boxes, our own projections of how we want him to be or how we want to worship and how we want to live for him. He's no genie in a bottle or fake deity that we can just warp around to be what we want it to be. He's the almighty God of the universe, creator and sovereign over all. He creates galaxies with a thought and keeps the heavens in motion. We don't put this God in a box. We fall on our faces in awe before him. Have you gazed upon his glory lately? Are you beholding him? Or are we seeking self-indulgent pursuit, asking God to just give us what we want instead of beholding his glory? Are we making golden calves? According to Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson in their recent book on the book of Exodus, they see there are two major events dominate the rest of the book of Exodus and both involve building a place of worship, the golden calf and the tabernacle, the false and the true, the problem and the solution. Israel's worship of the golden calf is a classic false story with a command broken by the priest. So this is how it compares to the fall in the garden. One has a command broken by the priest left in charge, that's Adam slash Aaron. The blame shifted to someone else, Eve and Israel. The exposure of shame, a curse involved eating. In in Genesis' case, there's dust versus powder. Death, the establishment of sword wielding guardians, the cherubim and the Levites. And the separation of God from his people. It's a low point of Israel's story so far. Moses, the mediator, intercedes for Israel and urges God to continue dwelling among his people. The Lord relents, shows Moses his glory, uh, reveals his name, and renews the covenant. If we come in to dwell in the tabernacle. There's a key moment in the, towards the end of this, chapter 40, where it says Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because a cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is a reversal of the fall with the new Adam in a new garden and the dwelling place of God established again amongst humans. It shows the, the, the marks of undoing Israel's slavery. Instead of being forced to build Pharaoh's cities using bricks without straw, they've been invited to build God's house using their best of gold and silver. Israel, despite their disobedience, has now and truly left the household of Pharaoh and joined the household of God, their new master. Do you see what's happening here? God is pursuing his people. His plan is to grace his people with his presence. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. God dwelled with his people. Similarly here, God is making a way to dwell with his people. But the people like in Eden messed up. They tried to do themselves, they went their own way, and but God in his great mercy showed them grace and provided them a way to still have his presence. He gave them the tabernacle. They sought false worship in the golden calf. Now they have true worship in the tabernacle. This is God's intimate pursuit of his people. His kindness and love. This is God's love story that he's given to us. His God choosing to dwell in intimacy with his people even when we turn to our own devices, even when we build our own golden calves. He provides a way for this to happen. He provides atonement. Ultimately, he provided it in Jesus Christ. There are three elements to the tabernacle that I want us to see. First one, the tabernacle is seen as a tented palace for Israel's divine king. He's enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant in the innermost Holy of Holies, the most holy place. His royalty is symbolized by the the purple of the curtains and his divinity by the blue. The closer items are into the Holy of Holies, the more valuable they are, the bronze, to the silver, to the gold of which they are made. So the tent is seen as God is our king. We don't need a king because he is enthroned. God is the king over us as a people. This is an establishment of the the nation of Israelite and the Israelites' nation is founded by the God-King. Number two, the other symbolic dimension is Eden. The tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, is where God dwells. And various details of the tabernacle suggest it's a mini-Eden. These parallels include the east-facing entrance guarded by the cherubim, the gold, the tree of life, the lampstand, and the tree of knowledge, the law. God's dwelling in the tabernacle is a step toward the restoration of this paradise. It's a picture of Eden that one day will be restored and will be completed in the new heavens and the new earth. Number three, the tabernacle represented God's house amongst the Israelites. That he would encamp in this his house in the midst, would be in the middle, and it'd be surrounded by concentric circles by other, other people camping. His house, he himself was symbolically represented as dwelling in the back room, you know, in the bedroom of the house. In the tabernacle's front rooms, we see several pieces of furniture, the things that you would expect when symbolizing a home, but only on a grander scale. You see a table, um, that's set up there for food a dining table of sorts symbolizes god's intimacy to eat and to dwell i love this imagery that we see here that we have a house presented a place where like, this is god this is where he hosts people the idea of hospitality was so big back then and here's this idea of an intimate god actually sitting down and eating with his people I preached sure on the resurrection on Easter, and one of the things I said, and I just loved about it, was when Jesus came up to his disciples in his resurrected body, and he said, hey, do you have anything to eat? Now, to me, I'm like, yes, that's awesome. I think that's cool. Jesus likes to eat. I'm like, yeah, Jesus, me too. You know, but what's also just so beautifully intimate about that is that a meal is something that you do as a family. A meal is fellowship. A meal is intimacy. A meal is coming in together and showing hospitality. This is what's symbolic of this house, is God saying, I'm intimate with you. I know you. I dwell with you. So you see, the tabernacle is to share this beautiful dwelling with his people by God. And what's even more incredible is that the tabernacle was made for the wilderness. God and Israelites made it in such a manner that it was easily movable. It could be packed up. There were poles to hold it. In other words, God was a pilgrim alongside the wandering tribes. He was in a tent as well alongside his people. One day they were to build a mighty temple, but till that day came, God pilgrimed alongside them. And all the tabernacle does, it leads us to its full conclusion in Christ. The tabernacle ultimately points to Christ because that is how ultimately God dwells in intimacy with his people. Jesus is the true tabernacle. That God instructs Moses to build this tabernacle foreshadows God's loving desire to meet with rebellious humanity. In this way, the tabernacle is an incredible source of encouragement to us. God, who dwells in heaven, has moved heaven and earth to reach down to us. When we could not get to him, he climbed down the ladder to get to us. John sees this tabernacle impulse of God in Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word for dwelt is literally tabernacled. In Jesus, we have a greater tabernacle, one made without human hands, in which the fullness of God dwells bodily. Likewise, John says that Jesus is full of grace and truth, which also references Exodus, for in chapter 34, God appears to Moses and describes himself as a God abounding in steadfast love, grace, and faithfulness, truth. When we read about the tabernacle, we cannot comprehend fully its significance without seeing that it is a shadow of the substance of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 25, there are three kinds of furniture. In verse 25 to 10 through 22, it gives directions for constructing the ark, and there's a blueprint, and it has a table for the bread of the presence, it has a golden lampstand, it's, it's each a cover with gold and placed inside the residence of God. And the gold speaks of the value and worth of the deity who inhabits the throne. But the furniture, the seat, the table, and light were common furnishings of ancient Israel. When God comes to dwell with Israel, he assumes the same humble residence as those in the wilderness. Though not, in, though not incarnation in the New Testament sense of the term, this kind of incarnation is what prepares us for the coming of the true Emmanuel. Jesus meets us where we are in simplicity. So, I love the fact that in the tabernacle, he shows that God will meet them where they are while they're wanderers, while they're pilgrims. He became a pilgrim. Thus, he shows, foreshadows that Jesus will come the way we are, lowly in a state. We also see the incarnation foreshadowed in another way. On the inside of the tabernacle are incredible colors scarlet, blue, and purple. Everything covered in gold, gorgeous on the inside. It shines forth God's glory. But from the outside, the temple is actually not beautiful. Or not the temple, the tabernacle, the the tent of meeting. The beautiful garments on the inside are covered by the black curtains of goat's hair. That does not sound beautiful to me. It could be. I don't know. Goat's hair could be lovely. I don't think it is. There's a light that burns eternally inside the tabernacle, but the outside is dark. And this teaches us about the life and ministry of Christ. When he came to earth, he did not come in power or glory or beauty. He came as a common carpenter. And if he saw Jesus in the crowd, he would not have radiated, he wouldn't have a glow to him, he was plain, he was common. Isaiah says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should rejoice in him or we should desire him. On a complete random note, my friend and I spent some time a few weeks back arguing and researching how tall Jesus was. This is actually a true thing that happened recently. I know we're random and weird people, and there's some interesting thoughts out there about this topic. If you ever get bored, it's a pointless exercise, but it can take a lot of your time up. And so we did all this research, and I've looked it up. I, I don't know, there's people who guess him to be four foot seven, some guess him to be five foot six, a whole bunch of range out there. But if you're ever bored, you can look that up for yourself. But what we, don't know, what we do know is that he probably was the antithesis of our culture today. He probably didn't look like someone we would want to follow based on looks. In our world, image is everything, right? We are a culture that's confused glamour for beauty. I'll go as far as to say well, that we know tr- little what true beauty is in this culture. And the tabernacle is a corrective for this. God's dwelling with humanity is incredibly beautiful. Yet from an earthly point of view, it is unimpressive. It was in a tent covered in goat's hair. This is the wisdom of God. Not only does the tabernacle point us to Christ's incarnation, it also foreshadows and explains his atonement. We see this in the altar and the mercy seat. Standing in the center of the courtyard, the priests could not enter the tabernacle without passing the giant altar. T.D. Alexander describes this altar dominated the area in front of the tabernacle. It was half the width of the tabernacle, 2.5 meters, and over four feet high. It was constantly burning with sacrifices and as Hebrews picks it up, it teaches us how much more valuable Christ's new covenant sacrifice was than all the other sacrifices of the old covenant. Hebrews says this, thirteen chapter verse chapter 13, verses 10 through 12. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In addition to the altar that stands outside the tabernacle, there is a mercy seat that rests inside God's inner chamber. It was here that God dwelled, and significantly, it was a place where mercy could be found. Through a series of purification rituals were needed for the priests to come into this place once a year. It was a place of mercy and grace in time of need. Significantly, the name mercy seat is translated in Greek by the word Helesterion. Which is a word translated in English as expiation, propitiation, or atoning sacrifice. Expitiation. Yeah, can't pronounce, talk. Uh, the mercy seat is a place where God's wrath is removed and replaced with his favor, is significant. More significant, however, is the way that in which it happens, in which it's procured, It is by the blood of the Lamb that is sprinkled on the throne of God. In the Old Covenant, this atoning sacrifice permitted God's people to dwell in his presence. It protected Israel from God's anger breaking out in the the camp. However, in the new covenant, Christ's sacrifice does not merely atone for the flesh, it purifies as well. It's not applied to a shadowy tabernacle on earth, it's applied to the heavenly altar in the throne room of God. His sacrifice is far superior and once for all. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14 says, He entered once for all into the holy places He is the king that is enthroned. He is the the one that dwells and lives in the house amongst his people. And he is the restorer of Eden. Guys, the story of the Bible that we talked about, the meta-narrative of the story of the lamb, is that it's a pursuing God who chooses to dwell with his people. In the case of Eden, we broke it. In the case of Israelites, we broke it with the golden calf. But what we see ultimately is the plan of salvation came. This plan of redemption, this plan that God to dwell came to to true fulfillment in Christ Jesus. When he truly came and he tabernacled amongst us, where he dwelled amongst us. And because of his work, we now have his spirit living in us. And as followers of Jesus, we are his tabernacled people. We are people that he dwells and he pilgrims alongside, he travels along with, he lives alongside, he eats with, he lives with, he, he works with. And then one day he will restore all that was lost. One day all that was broken will be made new. One day the earth will be renewed, the kingdom will be consummated, and there will be no more weeping, no more disease, no more brokenness no more separation. All will be made right. Christ will be enthroned and he will dwell with us forever. And there will be a city and the light of that city, there will be no need for sun, there will be no need for light because God himself will dwell and he will be our light. And that promised dwelling eternity forever is ours through the work of Christ Jesus. Guys, my people, can you hear me very well? Will you behold the light that is God. Will you behold Jesus, the one who allows God to tabernacle with us, to dwell amongst us, to live intimacy with us? And will you no longer build golden calves, try to do life on your own, live it by yourself, work harder, do better. Instead, will you say, God, will you behold him, bring worship to him, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him? In this time, in this difficult season, when people are struggling, jobs are being lost, people are hurting, people are dying. When people are going through different circumstances, oftentimes the natural impulse of man, oftentimes the natural impulse of me is to say, okay, what can I do better? What can I do more? My people, may you rest. This is what God promises, he promises rest. Will you rest knowing that God gives you all you need. And it's not about a do-it-yourself project, but will you just behold him? doesn't mean don't work. It doesn't mean don't try. What it means is will you work alongside him as his spirit leads you? Will you behold his beauty and glory? I liken it to this, guys, and I'll close with this illustration. You know, when my father, when I was younger, my father would ask me to do chores around the house. You know, it was, it was, you know, do this or do that chore. But what was my favorite times of doing chores around the house? Because my dad was a busy man. He worked two jobs often. He worked all day. And I, you know, I, every kid hates doing chores. I hated doing chores too. But if my dad had a project he wanted to do and I got to do it with him, oh man, that changed the whole experience for me. It was still a project. It was still a chore. It was still a job. But when my dad, who I didn't get to see that often growing up, who worked so hard, but when he said, okay, what he, he would come and say, okay, Lawrence, we're gonna, we're gonna fix this or we're gonna do this. When he came alongside when we did it together, it was still a chore. I still had to do work. I still had to sweep. I still had to hammer. I still had to build stuff. I still had to carry stuff. I had to still mow. I had to still do this. But man, it changed everything when I knew that he was responsible. When I knew that he was doing it with me, I knew that he was doing, he'll do the hard work. I just have to follow his instruction and I get to be with him. Ah, changed everything for me. My people, life is still hard and there's stuff that you have to do, work that you need to do, but when you know that he's doing it with you, he's guiding you, he'll take the burden of the responsibility for you, he's carrying the heavy load, will you just enjoy his presence as you do the work together? Will you behold him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for choosing to dwell amongst us for making a way for that to happen. God, for being a God who, from the very beginning, you chose to pursue us in intimate relationship. So you made a way for that. God, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our golden calves, God, we repent of that. God, we thank you that the tabernacle foreshadowed this beautiful dwelling that you ultimately gave us in Jesus Oh, may we accept that. May we learn to trust in that and stop trying to do it ourselves. May we trust that you are doing it with us. God, we thank you for your loving work. In Jesus' name, amen. Waypoint Church, today, we're gonna partake in communion together as a family. So I'll give you this time now. If you haven't gotten your elements together, go quickly, you can go get them real quick. And while I'm sharing here, um, go gather the elements together. And if you need to be creative, be creative. You know, if you need to go get some King's Hawaiian bread or go grab a piece of, you know, uh, some wheat bread you got over there or if you need to just grab a, a crust of a pizza, do what you need to do. It's okay. But as I talked about earlier, the tabernacle had two sections, the holy place and the most holy place, and God's very presence resided in the most holy place. And it was separated by the rest of the tent by a thick curtain, and this, this curtain symbolized God's separation from his people due to sin. And right outside of this curtain, there was a table. And this table had 12 loaves of bread called the bread of presence and one loaf of bread for each tribe of Israel. And the entrance to the tent faced east where humanity symbolically lives separated from God. And this is what, this is what that symbolizes. God is inviting the Israelites to come and dine with Him at his table. But the curtain separated them from their sin. Outside of the tent in the tabernacle courtyard, there was an altar. And this altar, once a year, um, on the day of atonement, the high priest sacrificed on behalf of the sins of the people. And because of this sacrifice, he was able to enter into God's presence in the most holy place, but this was a temporary solution. After thousands of years of sacrifice, during which people transitioned from worshiping God in the tabernacle to the temple, which still also faced east, God sent his son Jesus into the world to fix his problem. The night before Jesus is crucified, he breaks bread. And says, this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But then he hands out 12 pieces to his 12 disciples, just like what was on the the table in the tabernacle. And he's inviting those who trusted him to enter into God's presence with his sacrifice. He next takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. Jesus sheds his blood on that altar so that we can eat at the table in God's presence. As we approach the Lord's table today, we're doing something the Israelites weren't able to do fully. We're eating with God. This is something God intended for us and we get to partake in because of the work of Jesus. This is a family meal. This is what that table was there to tabernacle for. Tabernacle, therefore, was so that we can eat and dwell in that intimate family relationship together. And Jesus provided a way for that. So my people, as you take the bread, may remember that it's only by the work of Jesus can we eat with God. So, my people, we invite you to take the bread, if you'll take it, and you're welcome to take it by itself. You're welcome to dip it in the cup. I'm just going to take the bread first. And as we take it together, we invite you to behold the one who allowed us to have this intimate meal as a family with God. Let's take the bread together.